Hmm. There we go. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to, to be together today on Palm Sunday. Thank you for coming. Um, I'm always uh, happy or uh, willing, I, I guess that's the way I should put it, when Pastor Andrew asked me to fill in for him or to preach a sermon uh, here at church. Uh, I'm glad that uh, he and uh, Karen and the boys were able to, to get away a bit and uh, relax this weekend. I hope that it goes, goes very well uh, for them. Uh, and I've got my, my Bible with me. Uh, yeah, of course, a preacher always has a Bible, but I've got my giant print Bible today because I want to make sure I can read the print when it's time to do that. So yes, it's Palm Sunday this morning. All the four gospel writers tell us this story. I think we all know the story pretty well. It's, it's familiar to many of us, if not all of us. I, I just have the uh, question for you, though. How many of you are familiar with uh, the movie Any Given Sunday? How many of you have ever heard of that movie? Most of you are too young. Oh, there's a few of you. It's a football movie. It, was, uh, it came out in 1999, uh, which uh, t- right in my, my zone, you know, when I was watching movies and stuff, you know. Uh, and uh, Oliver Stone directed this uh, movie, and uh, it was based on a book with a very similar title called On Any Given a Sunday, and it was writ- the book was written by NFL football player by the name of Pat Tumay, and uh, the title of the of the of the movie and of the book comes from a line in the book, uh, which describes the fact that a team can win or lose on any given Sunday. Well, for the inhabitants of Jerusalem on this day, this Palm Sunday, this five days before uh, the crucifixion of Jesus, uh, Palm Sunday would not even have been an important day at all. Uh, I think sometimes we lose sight of this, that the calendar functioned different under Israel than what we have now. Uh, The day, of course, uh, the week had seven days uh, just like now, but... uh, (laughs) It all built up to the Sabbath, which was Saturday. Sunday was the first day of the week. It wasn't the big day that we in the the, uh, Christian world, I guess you could say, have made it out to be. And uh, so we have to remember that when we go back and read these passages, this is the first day of the week, but it wouldn't have been, that would have been a work day. It was a regular day for for the uh, Jewish people. And for them, it, it's, this was not a, a particular uh, important day or something different than the ordinary. It was a very ordinary day. And uh, so they, they weren't expecting anything. Uh, they didn't realize how different it would be that day, how important to their very spiritual survival this day would be for them. Now, for Jesus, on the other hand, he, there was no question about how ordinary this day might be or how typical it was of any given uh, first day of the week or, or uh, that type of thing. Jesus knew that things were going to change on this day. Uh, he wasn't worried about winning and losing. 
But he knew that this day he was going to remove the shawl that was partially hiding his identity. And he was going to reveal it for everyone to see, including the, uh, the religious leaders of the time who hated him, and all the people. Uh, and he was going to allow people to have the opportunity and the, and the necessity to choose for him or against him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we pray that uh, this uh, Word of God that we're studying here this morning is going to be useful to us, that we're going to uh, find meaning in it, that it will en enliven our hearts and it will prepare us to worship you, to live for you, and to even come to you in faith this morning if that is your plan. In Jesus' name, amen. They say that the devil is in the details. Well, the thing is, we know Palm Sunday, but in order to understand Palm Sunday, we have to study the details, go down a little bit deeper. So we need to zoom in with our, uh, our cameras, our, our, our phones, and zoom in on the, the events of this day. And I want to offer you uh, some observations, some of the things that we see here if we zoom in a bit. Uh, the first thing that I want to tell you this morning, by the way, if you do want to uh, follow a text with us, I'm, I'm using all of the four Gospels this morning, but uh, you might want to be looking at Mark chapter 11 if you would so choose to. Uh, but but the, one of the first things we notice in this account, the story of, Good Fr uh, of Palm Sunday, is that we are introduced to a different Jesus than what we have seen in the Gospels so far. The things that, how, the, how his life and his ministry has been described by the four uh, gospel writers, now we are introduced to something quite different here this, on this day. Uh, things are different than they, they typically had been for him. He is not reacting to anyone. He is not being interrupted by someone who has a need. He is not being uh, presented with sick people to heal. Uh, there are no Pharisees that are hounding him. There are no storms to quell. There is no dead man to rise, to raise, and there are no puzzling questions to answer. This is different. He is in charge. He is, uh, has a passion, has a purpose, and a, and a calling this day, and he is, this, he is initiating the, whatever happens this day. It's very evident. This is different than the other descriptions we have of Jesus where very often... As he was going, someone would come along, or he'd be in the city, he'd be speaking to his disciples, and something would happen. No, this day, it is about him. And, and he has a purpose and a calling for this day. That's the first thing we see. It's a, a different Jesus than we typically have seen in the Gospels so far. The second thing is that we notice that this day is a fulfillment of prophecy. It, 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 there's something that is being uh, done and happening here today uh, that uh, fulfills Old Testament pro prophecy. Uh, the novice reader would read about Palm Sunday, and uh, he would, might conclude that this, this story is about a man taking a ride on a donkey. And that, yeah, it's weird, but, but it's not all that spectacular. But there is much more to this day than Jesus getting on a donkey. Matthew adds this, uh, some... Uh, some things for us, some detail that we need to have. And that is that uh, Jesus uh, riding into Jerusalem on this day uh, on a, upon a donkey is a fulfillment of Zechariah 9 verse 9, uh, where 
uh, this is something written probably about 600 years before, and where it, it presented the Messiah that was going to come to Israel, he would come riding on a donkey. It, it says in Zechariah 9, 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey. The Messiah was going to be a gentle king, different than any earthly king. And Jesus had already been telling his disciples that. That his uh, kingdom, his leadership was going to be different than worldly kings were like. He, he was going to be a righteous king, bringing salvation for the people. That is what we need, friends. This is what everyone needs. That's what Israel needed at the time. They were a downtrodden people. They were defeated politically and in every other way, but spiritually as well. They were being misled by terrible spiritual or religious leaders and who, who had become carnal and hypocritical. And that they needed salvation in every way. And this king was going to be a humble king. Yes, riding on a donkey. What a, a glorious prophecy about the Messiah, but rather strange at the same time. Uh, this is the most unlikely way in which a king would enter their capital. Uh, riding on a donkey is not what would have come to mind for, let's say, the Roman, for King Herod, for, to enter Jerusalem, the Roman leader. He would not have thought about riding on a donkey. He would have been the laughing stock of the whole Roman Empire if he had done that. Perhaps Jesus was too, but that was maybe the point uh, uh, of uh, shocking people and showing people a different way. Uh, the Romans, for their part, stayed in the barracks. The Roman Empire was run this way. It, it didn't really matter what the people did. But as long as they didn't try to create trouble. If they created trouble, the Roman Empire uh, came down hard and quelled any uprising, any kind of disturbance. And yet, for some reason, on this day, the Roman soldiers stay in their barracks at this, and despite the fact that literally, yes, I mean literally, thousands of Jewish people were flocking to see Jesus. Now, I think that should have caused a little bit more concern on their part, but they actually just laughed it off because it was so preposterous. Uh, a person uh, riding somewhere on a donkey, I mean, this is... They didn't care. Jesus didn't look much like a king, but prophecy was being fulfilled. This, the point was, of course, that he didn't need to look like a king. That he, he, he was representing and sending a clear message. This is what I am. I'm your long-awaited king. I'm just not the king you were expecting. Another thing we notice here is that we see that this is also, we also see a symbol of national uh, uh, liberation. As Jesus makes his way along the, the road, the dusty road to Jerusalem, by this time probably he is on the donkey, and uh, he's making his way to Jerusalem uh, from Bethany, uh, people did something that uh, you wouldn't expect. 
they started breaking off branches off of the trees and they started uh, uh, waving them and, and rejoicing and shouting. And Now, why did they do that? We don't do it for our prime minister. We don't do it for any world leader now, uh, break branches off trees. Uh, the, the environmentalists would have uh, a heyday with that one. Uh, no, no, you can't be doing that kind of thing. But they were doing that here. Uh, there's some things you need to observe. Uh, in the Old Testament, the Jews were, uh, were told to wave palm fronds as part of the Feast of Tabernacles. So they already had been told by God to do this. Uh, 200 years before Christ, during the Maccabean Rebellion, the Jews temporarily rejoined, regained control of the temple from the Syrians, and they celebrated by waving palm branches together. Liberation. Then 30 years into the future, but we have it recorded in, in our, our, well, at least part of it is in the Scripture. Uh, we have what happened was it's a terrible day in the life of Israel. In fact, it's still talked about uh, today. A.D. 70. Titus and his, and his army came into Jerusalem and wiped the place out. Literally destroyed it from front to back. And uh, during this occasion, the, uh, the Jews uh, uh, minted coins containing the image of palm branches on one side, hoping one day for liberation. Why would you print coins when you're being defeated and you're destroyed and you... You, you have no hope of even a country. I just saw um, uh, a segment from, of news from Israel where uh, a Jewish rabbi was talking about this. He said, why did they do this? They did it because they wanted future generations to find the coins and understand that these people who died had the hope of liberation. So all these things together would suggest that the part of this whole situation, the palm branches and all that, was to bring joy and celebration, but it was also to bring national liberation. It was like a ticker day parade. The Jews were saying, this is a man, and this is the day. He, we finally got something. We've got a leader. We've got somebody who's going to lift us out of our imprisonment and our bondage to, to Rome. And so we move on now to uh, a question, but, it, but it's still an observation at the same time. Do we see a political Jesus on this day? It was five days before the Passover. This means that Jerusalem was now being inundated with people, the diaspora from all over the earth, were coming to Jerusalem for the Passover. And uh, these pilgrims numbered not in the thousands, uh, literally in the millions of people. Historian Josephus tells us that during the Passover, the population of Jerusalem could swell to over three million people. That's the kind of situation Jesus encounters as he's walking to Jerusalem. This is the, the closest thing you could have with all these people mill, milling about Jerusalem is uh, uh, for Israel, it would be the closest thing to having a national town hall meeting. It was 
Now's your chance. We got everybody together and the diaspora from all the world were joined with the locals and they were slapping shoulders and shaking hands and, and yipping and chatting and talking about civic events and they were telling stories about strange developments. And one of the strange developments they were talking quite a bit about and it was spreading like wildfire was that there was a carpenter from Nazareth who had been doing miracles. And one of the, he had not only healed people, but he had literally brought the resurrection or had brought a man from the dead who had been buried for three days. And this was the talk of the town. And uh, not only that, they were talking about the fact that this carpenter character from Nazareth was also chastising and uh, denouncing the hypocritical religious leaders that they had. And this came at some relief and some delight to the Jewish inhabitants. Amidst this hubbub of Passover week, people begin to wonder, could this man from Nazareth, uh, might he be the answer to our political uh, problems, our, our need for, for independence and uh, to have our statehood uh, completely restored and that kind of thing? They also wondered, would Jesus come to Jerusalem at Passover this year? Why? Because it was already known that the religious leaders were very ticked off by Jesus. And they were already scheming how to get rid of him. And uh, in John 11.53, we, we read that the, the, the disciples, the followers of Jesus, uh, were wondering, will he even dare come? Uh, he, he could very well find his demise if he comes. Would he dare to provoke the religious leaders and the authorities uh, who were plotting to kill him by this time? So into this volatile situation, Jesus rides on the back of a donkey. And the question is yet unanswered in our story. Will this be his entry into a political solution. We also see two scenes unfolding. We are confronted with two rapidly emerging scenes, one of them celebratory and the other enraged. Picture this, picture scene number one or scene A, whatever you want to call it, as Jesus leaves Bethany for Bethphage in the Mount of Olives, hundreds of people gather around and are running around and joining him. And if you read John's account, it is clear that another large group from Jerusalem, having heard that Jesus is on his way and they are leaving the city to join uh, Jesus and the followers with him as they approach the Mount of Olives. Somewhere on the far side of the Kindred Valley, these two groups amass together in this huge melee of uh, cheering, shouting, singing, laughing, dancing, chanting, mob gathers together. It is a day of unbridled joy as the common people finally feel like they've got something. There's some hope. There's, something's good going to come out of this. That's the one picture. But then you have another picture unfolding at the very same time. Inside the city, the chief religious leaders and the scribes watch the situation with increasing alarm. Uh, what you need to envision, although of course they didn't have this then, but 
uh, what you need to envision is the scenes we sometimes see broadcast or put on the news about the Situation Room in the White House when there's a particularly uh, dangerous situation unfolding, uh, when there's maybe uh, some uh, police action, war action, uh, some, uh, something like that happening at the, that involves the American, uh, the American uh, administration, they all gather in this room and there's screens everywhere and, and pieces of information are being sent to them from all over the world so that they can make the right decisions and so on. That's the kind of situation we see here in this plan B. These chief priests are hearing about all these things, the pub, things that are happening. The public display of support for Jesus is not desirable to them. That's the last thing they wanted. And it appeared to them that the entire world was turning to Jesus. I don't think that was true, but... But it seemed that way to them. A very large crowd of people were turning to Jesus. And their shock turns to dismay, and then it turns to anger as these reports keep on coming in. So on the one hand, you have this rising excitement of people thinking maybe Jesus is, is something great. Maybe he's going to be able to deliver us. Maybe he's the, could he be the Messiah? And, uh, as they, and these people are nearing the eastern gate of the city. On the other hand, there is mounting anger which leads the leaders to decide, yes, decide, that Jesus will not leave Jerusalem alive. Those are the two scenes that we see uh, unfolding before us. But we also hear, see, and it needs to be noted, some of the holy hurrahs that are occurring at this point in time. The procession makes its way towards Jerusalem. The shouts of the people growing louder by the minute. All four Gospels point out that the, that the people were shouting. And not only did they mention that they were shouting, they also mentioned what they were shouting. And what they were shouting was two things. One was they were shouting the word Hosanna. And the second was that they were saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna is a Hebrew word meaning save us now. Israel had a tremendous longing and desire for, for God to do something. And when I look at our world today, and I look at the, all the different complexities and the things, the uncertainties and things that seem to be un, uh, out of control in a way, I think we, would, we should rightfully be calling Hosanna. Hosanna. We need a rescue plan. We need, we, we need God to deliver us. And uh, this is what uh, the Jewish people were saying. Every observer knew that uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord was from Psalm 118. It was the most famous of their what they call messianic psalms, that is prophetic psalms that spoke of a future Messiah. But by the Jewish people uh, shouting these words, the people were explicitly identifying uh, Jesus as the promised Messiah. There's something that, that we need to note here that is not often mentioned in, in studying this. And that is that Jesus, uh, on this Palm Sunday, does not reject or object to receiving praise. Reno is the story of the Gospels. If you read the Gospels, you continually have Jesus saying, don't tell anybody. Just go. 
uh, uh, you know, it's good that you've been healed, uh, but, you know, there's no need to, to broadcast this. Why would he do that? If he's trying to establish a kingdom, why would he do that? Why? Because there was a plan that needed to be accomplished, and he didn't want anything to get in the way of that. But on this day, and that's why we believe that this is a coronation, not a coronation, though that's not the right word, but an announcement of Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus says, there's no point to stopping it now. Let the praise come. The time for silence was now past. If Jesus had once discouraged publicity, he now counted silence inconceivable. The time for the truth to be revealed had come. Then we see something that's very interesting. Something very strange happens. Out of step with the rest of the story. Luke is the only writer to mention this. At the height of this celebration where thousands of people are celebrating Jesus, Jesus begins to weep. What an odd response. When finally, in all your public ministry, there has been opposition and, and, and few genuine followers, and all at once he has thousands of people celebrating him and, 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 and so on. And there he is. And he's weeping. Why? Picture this scene. This crowd of people, these two crowds have gone together and now they're coming very close to Jerusalem and they come around the corner, so to speak, around the shoulder of Mount of Olives and for the first time, with complete clarity, they can all see the city of Jerusalem. And it, before, it is impressive and it is breathtaking. And when Jesus sees the city, he weeps. He's not weeping for himself. Uh, he has come, right? Remember? John says that uh, Jesus came unto his own. It says that he voluntarily came to be our Savior. No, he wasn't weeping for himself. He was weeping for Jerusalem who was going to reject him. Although it looked different right at that moment. And a lot of people, a lot of your Bibles will have the heading here, triumphal entry. Remember, those lines are not inspired. That, that's been put in there to help you. To, but in this case, it's not helpful. Because what happens on this day is really not a triumphal entry. Not when you've got people ready to kill you. That is coming in a few days. Victory is coming. But it isn't really on this day. Jesus saw beyond these crowds of people that were, were fawning over him and cheering him on. He saw another mob that would soon call out, crucify him. And they would crucify him. Five days later. By the way, despite what lots of preachers have suggested, 
there is no way to know with any certainty that the people that shouted crucify him are the same people that shouted Hosanna on the Palm Sunday. We don't know that. It could be, but we don't know that. So let's, let's be fair enough and not read into the text things that isn't actually there. So he knew that crucifixion was coming. That's why he was weeping. And uh, he also saw the future, and he saw the time when the Roman army would sack Jerusalem in uh, about 40 years, thence, uh, 70 A.D. And that's when he, re- or he says these things, from, and we find it in Luke 19, starting at verse 42. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in, in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. That's why Jesus is weeping. They would reject their Messiah. In the midst of the joy, Jesus saw the future clearly. The Romans were going to destroy their city and were going to kill thousands, men, women, and children. He also knew that why this would take place and why it would take place is because the nation would resist him as their Messiah. He knew the crowds were fickle. He knew the leaders were plotting against him. He knew the cheers would soon turn to jeers. He knew on Sunday what would happen on Friday. He knew the cross lay directly in his path. Knowing all of those things, Jesus continued riding. And he kept riding to his appointment. The question has to be asked at this point, How could Jesus have made it more clear than he did? How could he have made it more clear than fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament that every Jew should have known and should have recognized, and to some degree they did, the ones that were cheering him on at least? It was obvious. He had announced himself to the world that he was that that, Messiah. Uh, you know, days later, maybe like about six days later or so, people would not have a legitimate reason or, or defense, and they can't possibly have said, well, if only we had known. If only we had known. But after Palm Sunday, no one had such an excuse. They knew. No one could ever say he didn't make himself clear. How could he have made it plainer? He said, I'm, I, you know, if you destroy this temple three days, it's going to be built up again. Uh, I'm going to be crucified. He made it so clear, it couldn't have been clearer. On Palm Sunday, no one was under any compulsion. They were free to choose, and they were, it was required of them by Jesus, that they did choose, that they did make a decision. The nation had a clear choice to make. So did their leaders. 
The Romans did nothing to interfere. The priests stood by and watched it all happen. And Jesus called for a decision. And although the leaders understood Him, they did not cheer Him. It was all about how to defeat Him and get rid of Him. And the people also had a choice. They came so close on that day to embracing God as Messiah. They recognized Him. They recognized the fulfillment of prophecy. And they got so, so, so close. But close is not good enough. After Palm Sunday, the only thing that was left was Golgotha. Twenty centuries have passed since Jesus met His appointment in Jerusalem. What lessons can we learn? Well, I think there are three that I'd like to point out to you. First one is this. Spiritual opportunities don't last forever. There came a point uh, in Jesus' ministry that of a, we think about three years. There came a day when they had to choose. There was not another day. There was not another miracle to observe that would more fully convince them. There came a day when the time for choosing uh, really came to an end. Uh, You can't wait for Jesus Christ forever. There comes a time when a decision must be rendered and uh, for or against the Son of God. In spiritual matters, not to decide is to decide. If you're one of those people that's sort of like on the fence, Well, maybe, maybe not, maybe later. You are making a decision. You're making a decision not to follow Jesus, not to commit your heart to Jesus Christ. There is a time when spiritual opportunities end. Spiritual neutrality is a temporary uh, way station, not a permanent destination. No one says there forever, stays there forever. Kierkegaard, uh, the Danish philosopher, was right. One either believes in Him or is offended by Him. It's not some middle spot that you get to sit at that saves you. Palm Sunday reminds us that each of us must, sooner or later, we must make up our minds about Jesus Christ. So I'm just throwing that out to you. Are there possibly some people here today that have never made that decision? Jesus Christ, that you're sort of saying, well, I'm putting that off for a while? Maybe, maybe not. You can't stay there. There's going to be a day like these Jewish people where it just simply was too late. Rollo May, he offers a very helpful word at this point. The reason we do not see truth is not that we have not read enough books or do not have enough academic degrees, but that we do not have enough courage. He's right. It takes courage to believe in Jesus. Your friends may not want you to. They may mock you. Uh, Social media may be telling you how stupid to follow Jesus. They may be uh, suggesting to you that you'll lose all your friends. It takes courage to believe Jesus. in Jesus. Rarely is knowledge the root of our problem. Mostly we just lack the courage to embrace the truth. The truth is Jesus Christ. And its truth is what we are given in God's Word. It is not what social media and all the 
the various uh, progressives and woke culture wants to tell you it is. No, this truth is still the truth. And we still must make a decision, yes or no, to it. And if we have the courage, we can make that decision. If you lack the courage, ask God to help you. Ask someone else to help you, encourage you, and pray for you. That's the one lesson that I think we learn here. The second one is this, that the world that rejected Christ then still rejects Him today. And ever more so. Uh, if we did not realize that we were a, a, a fringe minority in our society, we are discovering it. And uh, we just have to face that reality. And uh, the people of the world hate religious uh, emotion the same way the Pharisees hated the crowds cheering on Jesus. They hate religious emotion because they don't get it. Because for the, 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 the world, a religion is an intellectual affair that never needs to touch the heart. There, there's, well, knowledge. Let's take a look. Let's compare documents. Let's see what this prophet over here said. What about this atheist uh, proponent over here? Let's take a look at all this and, and let's just gain knowledge and get more knowledge. That's not our problem. If a person will not give his heart to Jesus, Jesus wants no part of them. So if you're sitting on the fence, if you're someone who has never really committed your life to the Lord, you've never repented of your sin and by faith received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, just simply having an interest as the people in, on Palm Sunday did is not enough. That's what we learn out of this. And finally, the invitation is not to believe. It is to be brave. Christians, uh, Christ, I'm sorry, comes again and again and knocks on the human heart. Each time, a verdict must be given. And it is given. Either it is receiving Him or it is pushing Him away. Our greatest need is for moral courage to make the moral choice. All you need is enough courage to do the right thing. We live in the time 20 centuries from Palm Sunday. We have the benefits of the New Testament. We have the, uh, uh, the Gospel writers and all that. We have the benefits of all that. And there's a lot of people who claim to be God followers, claim to be Christian. Uh, they argue for a certain uh, moral stance that come out of Scripture, and they are appalled when politicians don't support that. And, and they, 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 yeah, but it's just knowledge, friends, for many of them. They have never surrendered their heart to the Lord of Lords. Imagine, just think of this. Jesus coming down Highway 12 into Steinbeck. Jesus has come, not to Jerusalem, but he's come to Steinbeck. Your king has come. The king you had long waited for has come. What will you do? Will you join with those who crucified him, or will you join with those who cry out, Hosanna, 
Hosanna. Hosanna. The Palm Sunday invitation is not only to believe, or it is a call to bravery. And I ask the question to all of us here this morning, how brave are you? How brave are you? Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for uh, the opportunity to be into your word again. I thank you that we could study uh, the story of Palm Sunday. And I thank you that it brings uh, truth to our souls. I pray that every person here this morning can honestly say from their heart, I've decided. I've made the decision. I'm, I'm following Jesus. I'm per- surrendering myself to him. I pray no one would leave today sitting on the fence, being lost and unprepared for the reality of what is coming. AD 70 could come again. Our city could get destroyed. Our world could get destroyed. Our wealth could get taken from us. Our children could be taken from us. But Lord God, may we be, have, have made the choice to follow, the courage to follow Jesus. In Jesus' name.